Welcome to the podcast channel of the East Bay Unity Intergroup of Overeaters Anonymous. The opinions expressed here are those of individual members and do not represent OA as a whole. For more information about our intergroup, please visit our website at eastbayoa.org. Thank you. I'm, I'm Judy, Recovering Compulsive Overeater, and I always like to start with all the disclaimers. Uh, I only speak for myself, not for OA as a whole. Uh, if you don't relate to things I say, I'm sure you relate to things other people say later on in the meeting, take what you like and leave the rest, all of that. Um, uh, I will be talking eventually about the, the eighth tradition. I'll also be telling my story, not necessarily in chronological order, but um, I'll get to that. And Bonnie, thank you for warning me after 10 minutes, because by then, if I haven't got to the eighth tradition, I will make sure to. Um I walked in here about 20 years ago, little more than 20 years ago, probably. I really cannot remember exactly when I when I started, but I walked into this meeting, which at that time was meeting at uh, St. John's Church. Uh, there are definitely quite a few people on these in these boxes on these windows that I knew I met back then, and that's pretty amazing. Uh, I I can't honestly remember how I learned about OA. There was nobody in my life who was involved in 12-step programs or who really struggled with addiction that I was aware of. Um, but I had heard about it and I was clearly struggling. <laughs> um, and I thought I would try it because nothing else had worked in terms of arresting what was going on with me and food and I, you know, there had been just years and years of failed diets and I was demoralized. I was even a little bit panicked at my skyrocketing weight and these images I had of myself not being able to fit through a doorway or sit on a chair or anything just was like, I just felt so out of control. I was dubious because nothing had worked before. And because I was so new to the 12 steps, when I walked in these and started hearing the 12 steps, I was baffled by so much of it. I was worried about all the God talk. I didn't get it about the character defects and making amends and what any of that had to do with anything. I've shared before that I went home and I told my husband, who was also unfamiliar with 12 steps, I said, you are not going to believe this, but only the first step mentions food. How could that be? You know, what is what, you know, what am I doing here? But the first step did make sense to me. We admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. And as I said, I knew I was powerless over food, so that made sense. And I also knew that my life was feeling very unmanageable at the time. You know, some of it was circumstantial. I had two sons, one against, I don't know exactly when, but one was in elementary school and one was probably starting high school. And they were both wonderful kids and doing fine, but they had a lot of needs. And I felt like I wasn't meeting those needs. And my husband who was a wonderful guy, was working way too hard. So definitely all of that fell on me. I had uh, I had a job that had somehow rather skyrocketed and, and turned into three jobs. And I just couldn't find a way to delegate, partly because we were way understaffed and I wasn't getting that support. And partly because I had part of my disease, which I've come to realize is codependence, uh, you know, said that I have to do everything. I just had to figure all this out. And so I was transitioning out of that job. I was a few years post-cancer. I'd had breast cancer. My mom had had breast cancer at about the same time. And I 
you know, the, the chemo and all of that and all of the fear related to that had really put me into a new place and made me also feel like I was having a very hard time being a good mom. Um, my mother had, her cancer had gone on from being that one cancer to two or three others one, and, and she died a few years after that. Um, so I was coming in again fairly soon after my mother's death and there'd been a lot of flying across country because my parents lived on the East Coast. I was also very close to my mom. So there was a lot of grieving about that. Seemed like she was way too young. Now that I'm about that age, it certainly feels like she was way too young to go. Um, and But I also just had this amazing sense. As I said, I was transitioning out of this job. I had this amazing sense that I had to do something or I was going to die myself. And it was partly, you know, identifying with my mom and being post-cancer, but also how much I was, you know, how much my weight was, weight, you know, hurting my health and and how much the incredible stress that I was feeling from not being able to manage it all was just getting to me. So I definitely got it when I heard that, saw that first step that, oh, my life was unmanageable as well as, um, you know, as well as my food being unmanageable. Um, so I, I'm definitely one of these people who, you know, I thought I walked in and I said, I, I had stopped working full time. I had decided the only way to deal with that part of my life was to quit my job and then offer to stay on as a freelancer doing one of those three jobs rather than all three. And it was sort of looks like it looked like it was going to work. And I was working at home. I was telecommuting way before a lot of other people I knew were. And I had taken the time to work on my health and my sanity. And I really walked into these rooms thinking that this was going to be the health part as well as getting some exercise. But I quickly discovered that it also was helping with the second part, the sanity. Um, I didn't feel like my life should be unmanageable. You know, I was married there were a lot of things going right in my life. I was married to a wonderful man. I had survived the cancer. I adored my kids. We had no money problems. I was living in a great part of the world, even though I'd had trouble with delegating. There were lots of things about my career that I felt successful at. I had good friends, all of that. Um, but that whole messaging about no excuse, no excuse for my life being unmanageable, no excuse for eating the way I did, uh, that was sort of a theme of my life, which will take me back to, you know, maybe the earlier childhood stuff. Um, I, you know, I grew up with a lot of guilt and a lot of sense of unworthiness. Um, a lot of that, no excuse for it. I don't deserve it. All of that. Um, some of that I know came from my mom, my, both of my parents sort of survivor guilt. They were both, um, children in Jewish and Jewish families in Europe. So they had both their families had fled from the Holocaust. Um, I know I heard from my mom a lot that she felt like, you know, why me and all of her cousins had died. And, you know, there was just this awareness that I had a very, very good life, uh, that we had been saved from this awful situation, that everything was good in our life and that we should appreciate it. Um, but along with that felt went a lot of guilt, like, all right, then I should just be perfect. There is no reason, there's no excuse for any of this crazy behavior or crazy thinking. Um, there was, as in, I felt very loved. It was a pretty wonderful family in a lot of ways, but there were also 
very critical voices that did come from my family, a lot of high expectations. I, I was good at school, but I never felt like I was ever going to really measure up to what my parents were very high achievers. Uh, I still really never did. Um, I had trouble socially, uh, not really because of my weight, because even though I was a big eater from day one, it didn't translate into my being super overweight till, till later in my life. Um, but still, I had trouble socially because kids do. Kids can be mean. I wasn't great at sports. I never, even though I wasn't particularly fat, I was not particularly dainty or any of those things that I thought I should be. I was sort of awkward in my body. I had a funny accent because we traveled a lot. And my parents had funny accents. All of those things that kids can pick on you for. Uh, and because I cared too much about what other kids thought about me, which is another, you know, another thing that opens that door. So there was a lot of self-loathing. Um, it didn't, as I said, become tied in with what I weighed until considerably later. Um, but I will say that a lot of those negative thoughts about weight were also planted very early um, in my family. I don't know where it came from, but there was a huge amount of fat shaming and horrendously negative talk about people who were overweight from my parents and their friends and my grandparents, everybody, you know, like would just, oh, just say awful things about people who were overweight, uh, you know, because they were weak and they were disgusting. And they, I mean, it was just, those things settled in that I heard very early, even before I thought, oh, that's me they're talking about. Um, and ironically, my mom, who was like a full professor in the sciences at a time when that was, she had to fight such a battle and had to, in the 50s, to, to, to achieve all of that and was so non-conventional in a lot of ways. But she was pretty darn conventional about this one thing, which is you better stop eating because you're going to get fat. And if you get fat, you're not going to find a man and then you will be miserable. So there was a lot of that. Is that 10 minutes? That's 10. Wow. Okay. All right. So um, I will skip way ahead um, and just say that, you know, that that started becoming more of an issue. Um, when I was in college, particularly, I was gaining weight. I was, you know, all the the messages from my mom about all of that had, were like coming true. There was, I was just a lot of sort of short-term relationships that didn't work out. I was so self-conscious about what I weighed. The more I worried about that, the more I weighed and the more I went crazy with diets and the more I failed at them. And so there was just a huge, huge, huge amount of shame. Um, I would go into some details about what I want all you to go into details about when you share about what kept me coming back in these rooms. But let me sort of transition to uh, the tradition, which is, you know, part of one of the things that kept me coming back and that helped me let go of a lot of the, the insane thinking. And that is the principles of these programs and that of this program. And that's, you know, a big part of the tradition. So once again, let me read you Tradition 8, which is Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Um, as with all the traditions, they serve two purposes. You know, the most obvious one is that it's sort of guiding us in our interactions as a group. It's sort of a gentle rule book for our meetings and our organization. And then there's also the personal 
part of it that applying the principles of the program to our own recovery and our own lives. So let me talk about the organizational stuff, which is sort of the, the basics. Um, they, the, the chapter for this um, in the 12 and 12 talks about, you know, when, when it makes sense to hire people to do the, the work that needs to be done, gives us permission to hire people in, in our regional or, you know, national or world offices to answer the phones, to send out literature. In our own intergroup, we haven't had a huge need for these kinds of things, but we do, we have paid for an answering service that then can get calls to the people in program who are not getting paid for it, but the answering service we pay for, or recently redesigned the East Bay OA um, website, and we did pay somebody to do the programming behind it, all of that sort of thing. Um, but the key part to this is that, quote, however, we never we are never paid for the service we give in OA, the hours we spend carrying the message of recovery to other compulsive overeaters. And this includes, you know, a broad range of service, sponsoring, leading meetings, greeting newcomers, organizing workshops and conventions. There is some details in there about that, that they say members who lead OA-sponsored retreats or events are reimbursed for the travel and lodging expenses. We're not expected to go out on a limb that way, but we are not paid, they are not paid for their leadership, even if they are professionals who command a fee in non-OA settings. And there's more about that too, that there are many people in these rooms who may have professional lives that that sort of may, may be specialists in addiction, may be therapists, whatever. But when you walk into these rooms, you are one of many and working with everybody and not hearing your with wearing your professional hat. Um, and then another quote from it, since there are no professional OA members, we all have an equal opportunity to serve our fellow compulsive eater. We don't need certification, education, or credentials to share our program or to do service. All we need is willingness and a commitment to the 12 steps and 12 traditions of OA. So transitioning into the personal piece of all of that, they say that the spiritual principle is fellowship, which it makes sense to me that we're all in this together and helping each other. I think the spiritual principle behind it could equally be service or humility. Um, you know, it's built on a foundation of sharing our experience, strength, and hope one member to another. Um, we're one of many, or a phrase I heard here when I first came in, the lighter one is I'm just another bozo on the bus. Uh, this has been the most challenging parts of my recovery, this whole, the humility part, because, um, and it's also been one of the most powerful ones. And one of the ones that have definitely helped me most is the idea. I mean, the idea that I'm still here after more than 20 years, when I am not all that good at it, is a miracle. You know, there's still shame there because, you know, I struggle so much with the physical recovery in these rooms. But it's also something I'm pretty darn proud of that, that I am still, you know, I heard that when I came here and I have stuck to it, keep coming back. Um, I didn't give up and that's five minutes. Thanks, okay. That's quite a miracle because I, you know, have with all my perfectionism and negative self-talk, there's been a lot of, over the years, a lot of sort of, if I can't do that perfectly, then I just might as well give up, you know, and I haven't done that here. I have clean abstinence for a while, then I stumble for one reason or another. I struggle to get back to that place. I can get frustrated. 
about the same character defects re-emerging over and over again. Uh, you know, wait a minute, how much, how many times have I done the steps? How many times did I try? How much time did I spend trying to ask my higher power to lift that? And it's still there, you know. But this program teaches me that the only qualification to be here is a desire to stop eating compulsively, that I don't have to be a superstar, that I'm not going to be kicked out if I don't do it right. It's taught me to focus on progress, not perfection, to find the ways of being of service to others without feeling like I have to be the perfect model. It's also taught me about gratitude. I have always had a blessed life, but I was too busy feeling guilty about that or worrying about what others thought of me or beating myself up for my weaknesses to truly appreciate it. And today, in spite of my lack of perfection, I am kinder and gentler with myself. I'm very grateful for the life I have and for this program that's helped me to get to this place. Um, and, you know, I'm just grateful to all of you for listening and for being here to support me and to support everybody else who shares this journey. Thanks.